Well, my name is Stephen, and uh, I'm one of the associate pastors here. And at the beginning of 2020 uh, was the first Sunday of 2020. It was uh, my responsibility on that Sunday to give what we call the transition. It's the moment uh, after worship uh, into announcements and offering. And normally, the person who does that seeks God, tries to figure out what is God saying for that particular Sunday. And I remember coming to church and uh, I'd seen something on social media about 2020, the year of clear vision. Oh, that was, you know, that's pretty clever. And just kind of filed that in the back of uh, my subconscious. And I got up to do the transition. I had something prepared on my heart and just kind of the excitement of the moment, new year. I got up and said, 2020 is going to be your year of clear vision. And here we are in the worst year ever. And I think back to those words, it's been anything but clear. You know, I've been uh, in this time, been thinking about just looking through history and biographies, just trying to get some perspective from someone from an earlier time period to help me think through the time that we're in. Biographies, history has that effect. It gives us some stability in uncertain times, looking how looking at how people lived and how they overcame. And that's what this series that we're doing here in Colossians is all about. Timeless, timeless truths for the times we're in. We've been going through the book of Colossians. And the idea is that we're going back, looking at Paul's letters in order to go forward with the things that we're faced with Today And so today I want to entitle my message, you're going to laugh when you hear this, Restored 2020 Vision. <laughs> I'm hoping there's some redemption in this year from what we look at in the book of Colossians in this passage in particular that can help us see three things more clearly. One, that we'd have a clear vision of the gospel Two, that we'd have a clear vision of the purpose of suffering. And three, that we'd have a clear vision of our work, the things that we put our hand to the plow towards. So if you would, uh, look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 29. These are the last verses of the uh, first chapter of Colossians. We're going to read this together. I just want to encourage you, close out those extra browsers, ESPN, Maybe the music you got in the background, tell the, tell the kids to be quiet for one second. We're going to press into this passage and uh, we're just going to go verse by verse and prayerfully at the end have a clear vision of the gospel suffering and work. Colossians 1, 21 through 29. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Verse 24, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, 
of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them. God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Father, in these moments that we have, God, give us a clear vision of your gospel. God, give us a clear vision of the suffering that many that are tuning in might be experiencing. Give us a clear vision of the work that you've called us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. When we read the Bible, we have a tendency to read it with ourselves primarily in mind. And that's not necessarily a bad thing per se. But if we're not careful, we can skew the message to be all about us. We can take Old Testament stories that maybe you're familiar with, David and Goliath, and then just kind of moralize the main character to fit into our life where we become David taking on the Goliaths in our lives and God exists to help us overcome those giants. Or perhaps Daniel, the lion's den. We're Daniel, we're going through this horrific situation and we need, surrounded by lions, God to silence the mouth or to close the mouth of those lions. We have a fall festival coming up here at this church. We're doing an outdoor drive-through production called The Real Superhero. And part of my role along with, with some others has been writing the script for that production. And we had a a series of auditions, and people could audition and pick out a character, one of these eight different superheroes that they wanted to be a part of. And understandably, they'd look for a character that kind of fit their personality, their characteristics, and audition for that role. And what I found that often, the person that they auditioned for was actually not the best person for them to play in the play. And the reason being is I had a different perspective having written the play, knowing the overarching story, where the play is going, and a better idea of where they might fit in that storyline. And if we're careful, if we're not careful, if we don't know the overarching storyline of Scripture, of God's plan of redemption, we can cast ourselves in a role in a much more favorable light than we should be in. Paul's going to introduce some characteristics of us as human beings, your role in this storyline, God's storyline of human history in verse 21. And he says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Quite an introduction to this passage. Paul puts us all on the same playing ground. That we are alienated, we are separated from God. And it's not because of God's doing, it's because of our own doing. It's because of the sins that we commit. It's because of the sin nature that we have. That our minds are hostile. They're opposed to God. 
And that seems really harsh because we think of nice things that we've done and pleasant thoughts that we've had and people that we've loved. But our evil deeds reflect that our minds are hostile. You take the Ten Commandments, and uh, certainly there's a few commandments that hopefully we've kept, right? I mean, we haven't violated all of them. I mean, sure, we might have told a lie. It's one of the commandments. It's kind of towards the end of the list, so maybe that's not too much of a big deal. Maybe we've stolen something. Even It was kind of small, though. But then Jesus steps foot on this earth and begins to teach, and he raises the bar of the Old Testament. He doesn't lower it. He doesn't nullify it. He raises standard. And he says, if you've looked at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery. I thought I was going to get off free on that, on that command. I thought I'd never committed adultery, but having looked at a woman lustfully, I've committed adultery. Well, certainly none of us have ever murdered before. But Jesus said, if you call your brother a fool, you have hate in your heart, you have murder in your heart. So we can go one by one through those Ten Commandments, and at every place we have broken the standard of God. Our evil deeds have exposed the fact that our minds are hostile. And that levels the playing field with everyone around us, particularly those that we naturally hate. Now, hate is a strong word. Maybe it's more like a strong dislike. That political figure that we bash on social media or that person on the other side of a Facebook debate. And yet what Paul does is he says, no, 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 no. All of us fit into this category of being alienated, of having a hostile mind of doing evil deeds, which means that our outrage culture, our cancel culture looks rather silly in the context of what Paul's writing here in Colossians. While we cancel people that we hate, while we ignore them, while we badmouth them, while we accuse them, what we find here in this first verse, in verse 21, is that all of us stand on the opposite side of God. And how does God respond to that animosity that we show towards him through our thinking and through our evil deeds? Here's the real shocker. He doesn't cancel us. He doesn't ignore us. He doesn't put us off over in the corner. Verse 22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. God sent his son, Jesus, to bring us back to him. Pastor June last week preached on those incredible verses in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. The Christological hymn, these amazing lines about how preeminent, how powerful Jesus is. And there's a part in that passage that he preached on last week that Jesus, through him, reconciled to himself all things. And now Paul is zoom, zooming in on that aspect of Jesus' role as the great reconciler and showing us that primarily, of primary, primary importance is the fact that Jesus has reconciled us to him. And that that reconciliation, it was costly. It cost Jesus his body of flesh. See, Jesus being 100% God, 
man and 100% God, being the God-man, the incarnate God, when he died on that cross, his human flesh was whipped and beaten, crushed and bruised. That act of reconciliation cost Jesus his human body, but as a divine being, as God himself, his blood, divine blood, was spilled out for our sins. That reconciliation was costly. And why did God do that? Why would God take those of us who were enemies of him, all of humanity, and give his own son to reconcile us? Verse 20, the second half of verse 22, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now there's a reason why nobody has ever asked me to appear on a weight loss commercial. I am 155 pounds, 30 years old. 15 years ago, as a sophomore in high school, I was 155 pounds. I could work out five days a week for six months and I will still be 155 pounds. I can fast and I lose one or two pounds and then the next week I gain it all back. There is no transformation in my body that would warrant me being on a commercial for weight loss. And yet the example Paul uses here of transformation is so powerful because as human beings that were alienated and hostile in mind, And doing evil deeds. Those three characteristics. Now, because of Christ, because of that act of reconciliation, we have been presented holy, blameless, and above reproach. That's where history is heading. That's the good news of the gospel, that God has reconciled us to present us. That Jesus presents us before the Father as holy, not because of anything that we've done, not because all of a sudden we turned into a good person or somehow our good outweighs our bad. It's only by the grace of God and the blood of Jesus that covers our sins that now we can stand before God. One day when we stand before him, when Jesus comes back and we're presented by Christ to God, we're perfect, we're spotless, we're above reproach. And that is really good news. You know, we have a staff Christmas party every year, and uh, we give out awards. And I, I wish I would have brought it. I have a small trophy. I, I'm proud to announce I won one of the awards at the GCC staff Christmas party. I won the 2019 award called the Black Hole Award. And it's a fascinating thing because I am probably one of the more linear, uh, organized, analytical members of the staff. And yet I have this absent-minded professor aspect of my personality where I lose just about everything. I have had to limit how many things are in my pockets to ensure that I don't forget anything. And if I have anything in addition, a jacket, if I have an extra set of keys, if I have some important paper to hold on to, sometimes my wife will give me something to give to someone at church. I can guarantee you I will lose it. And so I was presented with this award, the Black Hole Award. And fittingly, I forgot the award at the Christmas party. But you know, that award, that cheap plastic trophy, there's obviously no value in that. And in any trophy, even the most valuable trophies, whether it's the Lombardi Trophy or the Stanley Cup, 
Sure, there's some inherent value in the, the materials that's made, that the trophy's made up of. But the real purpose of the trophy is to point to the champion. The focus is not as much on the trophy as it is the champion hoisting the trophy. And it, my concern about our understanding of the gospel is that while we might, might give intellectual assent, we might have a series of these facts memorized that God has sent his son Jesus, that he died, that he rose again, and that anybody who believes in him can have eternal life. We know the gospel subconsciously. We think the gospel is really about us. That it's about God saving us so we can go to heaven and be with him forever. And that is a powerful, powerful implication of the gospel. Don't get me wrong. That is some really good news that we, those of us who are in Christ, are not going to hell. I don't want to downplay that at all, but we are not the focus of the gospel. God is the gospel. And that trophy presentation that all of history is climaxing towards is not about the trophies, per se, of grace. They're about, it's about the one hoisting the trophy. See, our lives, the transformation that we've experienced because of Jesus, now being holy and blameless and above reproach, all is for the purpose of God being glorified. That when God lifts our lives up, we're trophies of his grace. We reflect the fact that he is a great God. That's the gospel. It's about his glory. It's about his fame. And that's really good news because you and I don't make a good God. We are finite apart from Jesus. We are sinful. We are selfish. And it's really good news that the gospel is about God. And it's about his story. It's about his glory. It's about his fame. And we get to play an incredible part in that story and having our lives transformed by this gospel. See, our identity as Christians is rooted in two realities, one past and one future. The past event of Jesus reconciling us to the Father that happened 2,000 years ago on the cross. And when we believe in Christ, that is a reality of our life. And then there's this future event, the award ceremony I just talked about, where God presents us. We're lifted up as trophies of his grace. That's where history is headed. So we are in between those two events, a past event of reconciliation, a future event, a hope of glory. But how do we live now? How do we live in between? Here's what Paul says, verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. There's a word there, if. It's a conditional word. See, Pastor Corey, when he shared on this book, very clearly described how Paul is trying to get the Colossians to see that Jesus plus something equals nothing. And that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That the Colossians had tried to add certain things to their faith. That false teachers had come in and insisted that they have this severe form of self-discipline or that they worship angels. And we'll get to that in chapter 2 in the weeks to come. That 
Faith was about elaborate visions and dreams and observances of religious days. It wasn't that Jesus' death wasn't important, but something needed to be added to that. And the whole point of the letter and of the gospel is that you don't need to add anything to Jesus. That his sacrifice is sufficient and that by believing in him and receiving that gift of salvation, it's all we need. And yet, for many of us, we enter into the kingdom of God by believing that message, by putting our faith in Christ. But then once we enter into the kingdom, once we start doing this Christian life, we think now it's about us doing things to earn God's favor. That now that we've received this gift of grace, we gotta, we gotta be a really good Christian. We gotta pray, we gotta read the Bible, we gotta help old ladies across the street, we gotta be really nice to people. And if we don't, we're very concerned that somehow we've fallen out of favor from God. And what Paul says is, no, 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 no. Here's the condition. It's not you doing more. It's not you trying harder. It's not you adding something to the gospel. It's just holding on to that same message that you believed. It's not shifting from that message. What does that look like to practically hold on to the message of salvation? I'll give you four practical examples. Number one. When you lash out at your kids. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm probably talking to another, another church. I'm talking to the wrong church. None of you guys have ever lashed out at your kids. Well, for those of you who might have, like the one or two of you, when you lash out at your kids, you take a moment and you say, God, this is just evidence that I need your grace, that I'm messed up. Thank you for sending your son to die for me. And you go and you apologize to your kids Showing them that you're no different than them. That you need the same Savior. Number two, when you're lonely. When you've been stuck at home in this coronavirus season, you haven't seen family, you haven't seen friends. How do you hold on to the gospel? You say, God, I thank you. You've placed me into your family. That you're my father. Jesus is my older brother. I've been adopted into this family. And so, Lord, even though I feel like no one's around me. I don't have any connections. I'm all alone. I thank you that you placed me into your family, that I'm a part of the family of God. When you're anxious about money, say, God, I thank you for the good news that you're a father who provides. And while I might be out of work, I might be concerned about where the next paycheck is coming, about the needs that I have, I thank you. You're going to find a way to provide that's what you do as a father. You begin to preach the gospel to yourself. Number four, when you're stuck in an addiction and you try to go 20 days without doing this or 14 days without doing that and you exhaust all of your efforts, you say, God, I recognize that the same grace that I needed to come into the kingdom I need now to overcome this sin and that apart from you moving powerfully and me walking in transparency with others, I'm going to be stuck in this, but I thank you that there's power accessible to me. The same power that raised Christ Jesus now lives in me, and I can conquer this sin. That's preaching the gospel. That's holding on to the gospel message. And that's what Paul's talking about here. See, 2020, the year that's been crazy and everything's been foggy, if we'll look to this passage, the timeless truth, We'll have a clear vision of what the gospel 
really is. The gospel is about God. The gospel is not about us doing more. It's about continuing with the same faith that we had when we entered into the kingdom of God. Now Paul pivots to the second topic of suffering, and it kind of comes out of nowhere a little bit. Look at verse 24. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Now, normally what Paul does in one of his letters, in all of his letters, is he'll introduce themes in the first few verses, and then he'll elaborate on those themes throughout the letter. But here, Paul, he doesn't mention any suffering up until this point. And then suddenly in verse 20, he's rejoicing in his sufferings. How do they fit into this? whole thing of life. I mean, we've been reconciled. That's a pretty good thing. We were enemies and now we're friends of God. We were headed to hell. And now we're going to heaven. That's the past event. We're looking forward to this future moment where we're presented before God as trophies of his grace. But why do we experience these sufferings here and now? What's the point? I know many of you, I've, I've talked to a few of you even this week. I talked to a friend who put in his two weeks at his work and was promptly just dropped from his job. Now he's without a paycheck that he expected and trying to figure out his finances. Walked with a family who lost a child, one day old. Now many of you have been experiencing trauma from the racism and the events happening in our nation with the verdict of Breonna Taylor and the events that have transpired this summer with Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd. Why do we experience this kind of suffering? What's God's purpose in it? Well, the Christian worldview speaks to, speaks to suffering unlike anything else. See, the atheist, the agnostic has to say, well, I guess it was bad luck. You got the short end of the gene pool of the, of the stick. Hinduism, Buddhism says, you're going through this because you deserve it. It's karma. You probably did something bad in the life before this. Even in Christianity, remember Job's friends? He said you, they said, you must have done something wrong. You got to repent. But now here Paul is, not enduring them, not cursing his luck, He's rejoicing in his suffering. No, what kind of suffering was Paul experiencing? I mean, he, suffering was not something he was unfamiliar with. He was beaten with rods. He was uh, thrown into prison. He was shipwrecked. He was stoned. I mean, in other letters that he wrote, he details some of the suffering. But right here in Colossians, he's writing while being in jail. He's been thrown into prison for his gospel ministry. So he is speaking firsthand about suffering. And he's not just speaking about it, he's rejoicing in his sufferings. Paul, why are you rejoicing in your sufferings? Are you, I mean, if, if someone endures with, with suffering and has a generally okay attitude about it, we, we think that they have commendable character. But here Paul's taking a step further, he's rejoicing in his suffering. Look at the second half of verse 24. Paul, why can you rejoice in your suffering? He says, and in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. 
something's lacking in Christ's afflictions? That doesn't seem to make sense because everything we're told about Jesus' death on the cross is that it was completely sufficient. That's what the whole purpose of Colossians is all about, Christ's sufficiency in his death. So what is Paul talking about here that is lacking in Christ's afflictions? It's not Christ's afflictions per se, but it's the Colossians' view of his afflictions. See, they had lost sight of the sufficiency of Christ's afflictions. Their vision had been impaired by these false teachers. And now they don't see Christ's afflictions as sufficient, but now they're, they're looking face to face through Paul's letters with Paul's sufferings. And they're seeing a supernatural joy, a joy that's unnatural to the human psyche. And now face to face with Paul's joys in his afflictions, now they can see Christ's afflictions as what they really are, sufficient. So that friend who experiences unjust treatment in his work, when he doesn't complain, when he rejoices, when he might even send a gift basket to that ex-boss who promptly laid him off without reason, when he rejoices in that suffering, we see the sufficiency of Christ's afflictions. When that family who lost that one day old still in their grief experiences joy and rallies together and holds on to Christ, we see the sufficiency of Christ's afflictions in their afflictions. When those experiencing racial trauma choose to pray for the very people who are opposed to them, we see the ministry of reconciliation expressed through their joy in their afflictions. And here's more proof. Look at verse 25. He says, Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Now Paul's going to use the same root word here. Verse 24, when he talks about filling up what is lacking, he, use, he uses a word in the original language in Greek, antanaplero. The root word there, play, row, means to fill up. He says, I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. Then in the next verse, in verse 25, he uses the same word, play, row, sigh, the same root word, to say that now the word of God has been made fully known. The full afflictions that he's experiencing has made the word of God fully known. And that's what our afflictions do. They allow people to see a clear vision of who Jesus is. And so that's why God allows us to experience suffering. He doesn't cause it, but he allows us so that in the joy that we experience, we point people to, in our lives and in our words, the powerful gospel, the hope that we have in Jesus' death and his resurrection. 2020 has been a year of afflictions. And I want to encourage you, don't waste them. Don't complain about them. I know it's tough. But rejoice in them. Allow them to make Christ fully known through your life to those around you. When your friends, when your coworkers, when your neighbors, when your family members see you still having joy while being unemployed, still having joy when another event of racial injustice happens in our nation, Still having joy 
when you go through a tragic event. They see something of Christ in you. Paul shows us a renewed vision of the gospel. He shows us a renewed vision of our suffering. And then finally, a renewed or restored vision, a 2020 vision of work. See, the sufferings Paul mentions in verse 24 are external to him. He He didn't choose to be in prison. He was doing the Lord's work, and as a result, he was in prison. They're outside of his control. But now he's turning to something that is in his control, what he chooses to give his life to, his work. And we've been going through this time of coronavirus where everything has pretty much shut down. And now things are starting to open up a bit. Restaurants are starting to open up. We're doing church. Things are starting to get busy. And we have to choose, now that we're moving into this re-entry phase, so to speak. What will we give our time to? What will we devote our work to? Will we just go back to how things were before this or will we have a renewed vision of our work? Verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, before Paul gets to His work, he once again returns to the why, to the gospel. Paul recognizes he's living in prime time. This is the fourth quarter of human history, that what was clouded in the Old Testament, what was mysterious, the prophets got glimpses of it. The angels longed to look at this mystery. And now in Jesus Christ, the mystery has been revealed. And that mystery is very simply Christ in you. See, it's so easy to lose sight of the gospel with things going on, with the political election coming up, with the pandemic that we're in, with this recent summer of of racial injustice. That's not recent, recent the injustice, but the recent events. The long days of work and, and school, it's easy to lose sight of that future hope of glory. What sustains us until that day? It's the mystery of Christ. Remember Pastor June's message last week, Christ, the sustainer, the creator of all things, the image of the invisible God, that Jesus Christ who is preeminent, who is sovereign, is now living in you and me. And that's really good news. And that changes the way that we work. Because God is presenting us as trophies of his grace. But now we have the privilege of partnering with him. Of presenting others to present to him. To give him glory. We get to be a part of that work. Of seeing others' lives. Our friends, our family, our coworkers come to know Christ. What does Christ living in you look like? Well, for me, it, it looked like before being a liar before being addicted to things on the internet. And now, because of Jesus Christ, because of the preeminent Christ living in me, being set free, being not a liar but a man of integrity, being not addicted but having a life and a testimony of purity, all because of God, all because of Christ in me. And now that our schedules starting to pick back up we have a choice what will we fill our schedules with 
Kids' sports practices are back up and running. Netflix TV shows, there'll be more of those. Happy hours at work have probably about to get started back up if they haven't already. Never-ending work responsibilities. Here's what Paul chose to give his time to, verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. He gave his life to preaching the gospel, teaching people about Jesus. And I know the tendency for you and I is to look at that and say, well, sure he did, he's Paul. He's an apostle. But I want you to notice one really key word. I, I looked at this and I couldn't figure out if the same thing that he did applied to us. I mean, it, it seems kind of obvious, but maybe that's just a part of being an apostle, being Paul, you go and do those things. But notice in verse 28, he says, him we, we proclaim. And then we'll get to this, but at the end of chapter four, he brings up some of his fellow coworkers and he talks about a guy named Aristocharis, my fellow prisoner. He talks about Epaphras, who is one of you. His whole point is, this isn't about me, baby. This isn't about Paul. This is about us. This is about we. This is the mission that we are a part of, presenting others to Jesus so that Jesus can present them to God. We have been enlisted to be a part of this message. That's the gospel. Here you go, God. Here's another one. Here's my sister, or here's my boyfriend, or here, well, hopefully you're dating someone who's, say, but anyway, here's my family member. Here's my coworker. Verse 29, this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I know, I know that this is tough. You're trying to figure out how to homeschool your kids, how to do online schooling. You're working, some of you teachers, some of you guys, Working long hours. You might say, Pastor Stephen, I appreciate everything slowing down, but that's not been my story. Things have sped up. Things have gotten busier. Whatever responsibilities you have, I know they're hard and they're demanding. And you're wondering, how can I, how can I be preaching the gospel? How, I mean, when am I supposed to find time for that? When am I supposed to find time for being in a small group or being a part of Lead Well, our, our leadership development program here? Or when am I supposed to serve? I mean, that's just, I, I can barely tread above water how things are right now. Verse 29, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Here's this beautiful gospel picture of when we work. We don't work in our own strength. No, the gospel of Jesus Christ means that Christ living in us now empowers us to work. That as we work, Christ is working with us. He's working through us. So when we have our blood, sweat, and tears, they're not just our own. The blood of Jesus Christ living in me means that his blood now covers the times that I lose my cool, my frustration, my lashing out. Christ living in me means that in his humanity, he sweated. He worked hard and was subject to the same frustrations of this earth. And now he living in me means that just as he overcame, I can over overcome in my work. Christ living in me that means that as I pray for my kids, I access the same fervency, the same power that Jesus did when he prayed and blood sweat from, from, from his brow as he prayed for you and me. That same fire, that same earnestness, Christ living in me and you. Church, let 2020 be a year of restored vision of the gospel, of your suffering, and of your work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you 
have given us this good news. We bless you. We honor you. And Lord, we want our eyesight restored in Jesus' name.